Hello and welcome to our second researcher spotlight. In the second episode of each month, we shine a light on one student's research and PhD journey, helping our listeners to learn more about new research and helping our PhDs to promote their work. Today I'm joined by Shane O'Donnell, a PhD researcher in the School of Nursing at Queen's, whose PhD thesis is entitled Creative Media as a Vehicle for the Reduction of Suicide Risk Among Men. As such, please be aware that the topic of suicide will be discussed here and that there is support available at the links below this episode if you're affected by any of the issues raised. So hi, Shane. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're going to just start off with a couple of questions, know more about you and the research that you've been doing uh, during your PhD. So can you start by telling me about yourself and your research? Yeah, so my name's Shane O'Donnell. I'm a PhD student in the School of Nursing uh, in Queen's University. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a Marie Curie scholarship um, from the Spark Co-Fund. So really what the Spark Co-Fund is, is um, 20 students from all around the world who are doing interdisciplinary research and who are, in addition to doing their PhD research, are also doing like a training program. Um, So this is around like, it's kind of like structured training. So yeah, last week we did one on grant writing, the week before, um, we did one on how to publish papers um, and stuff like commercialization and intellectual property and stuff like that. So it's great to have that support of have the people in my school and I also have the Spark cohort as well. So my primary area of research is men's health. Um, so men's health is predominantly related to the social determinants of health. And when we talk about the social determinants of health, we talk about, you know, economic stat or socioeconomic status, age um, and gender. So while sex refers to the anatomical and physiological differences between what we're assigned at birth as male and female, gender refers to the kind of behaviors, roles and expectations that are associated with the sexes or those that transgress the binary of male and female. So in my case, it's men's health. So it's the roles, expectations and behaviors that are associated with men or what we call masculinities. Um, So notice I said masculinities, not masculinity. So there's more than one way of being a man. So when we think about health, we think about the ways that men are expected to behave or act and how that influences their health outcomes. So be that negatively influence their health outcomes or how we can leverage some of those behaviors to positively influence men's health outcomes. Um, So, yeah, so my primary area is suicide prevention and mental health promotion. So when we think about masculinity from that perspective, um, we think about how men may not seek help for mental health issues because kind of in a bid to adhere to masculine ideologies of being stoic or being self-reliant. Um, men have higher incidence of alcohol and um, drug misuse. So it's theorized that that's a result of men not seeking help and trying to cope through more male acceptable outlets and things like that. But also 
uh, in my area of research is how, as I said before, how we can leverage some of those masculine traits um, to maybe better support men. So we talk, often talk about gender, gendered um, responsive approaches, which means how do we kind of consider gender in the development of interventions to support men. So there's been success in approaches that um, use kind of the community-based setting to support men's mental health, those that use a non-direct approach to health. So if we think about we want to promote mental health, well, we might run a physical activity program in a, in a sports setting with, with a club, with a football team. That doesn't necessarily, you know, it's under not the guys, but people think of it as a physical activity program rather than a mental health program, but the outcome is mental health. So it's kind of finding ways around that. So my area at the moment is developing participatory arts interventions to promote mental health amongst men. So um, when we think about men and interventions, as I mentioned already, we often think about physical activity interventions. We think about woodworking interventions in men's sheds and things like that. But there's not a whole lot out there on participatory arts interventions. And I mentioned at the start, there's more than one way to be a man. It's not just masculinity. So we need to think about how we can offer more interventions to support men around their mental health, which is why I'm exploring participatory arts. So through that, my research has been that so far. So I've conducted a systematic review, which is basically just exploring the literature and what's out there with arts and men, which is not a loss. <laughs> um, I went then and did focus groups and interviews with men in Northern Ireland and Ireland to explore some of the factors that impede or facilitate their engagement in participatory arts and the benefits that they have accrued from engaging in that. So that helped me to form sort of a key number of lessons I've learned from the research that should inform interventions in arts if they're being aimed at men, um, which then led to me developing a digital storytelling intervention. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. So digital storytelling is, is, is really it's nothing new it's telling stories about yourself but in a digital way and it's it's usually a story that's about something meaningful in your life it's about a story um maybe where you learned a lesson in your life that you would like to pass on to future generations so that's how we're framing this intervention for men maybe older men who are retired who may feel that this is something that would appeal to them because they can pass on their wisdom that they've learned through their lives so that's kind of a background of me and and men's health I suppose a quick introduction and a quick introduction to my research I, th I think it's great um, your research really sounds profound uh, and kind of really unique to be combining arts and mental health uh, it's actually something we've seen quite a bit in the last few years here at Sonic Arts Research Center is this aspect of using technologies to better health and mm. um, I'll just move on to the question two then so so your research can often prove difficult with little reward. Why did you choose this path? Yeah, um, well, I actually started my undergraduate degree in sports science, which is completely different than what I'm doing now. So um, I used to work with sports teams in strength conditioning and gyms and, and things like that. Um, and I I kind of became oh, oh, quite aware of the culture in sports teams and 
like I used to work with injured athletes, maybe taking them for sessions. And like you have really personal conversations one on one. But as soon as that goes back into a team setting, back into the rest of the group, the dynamic changes straight away. It's it's kind of like, you know, it's just different. And it's kind of that like big boys don't cry culture and things like that. And I just became really interested in that. So, um, yeah, I I I finished my undergraduate degree I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life as maybe most people don't at that age and that's okay um and I went traveling for for eight or nine months I went to Australia and went to Asia and stuff like that and then I was kind of reflecting on what I liked about sports science and it was about helping people and it was about you know and I had this thing in my head about men's health so I ended up uh, going back to where I did my sports science degree. And maybe this has influenced why I think about that way in men's health. But the National Centre of Men's Health in Ireland was in my in my institution. So I kind of approached um, Dr. Noel Richardson, who's the director of that. And I, I told him I was interested in the area. So I ended up starting a master's there on suicide prevention and middle-aged men. So, to see, yeah, why, why it can seem difficult, but or can proved difficult with little roar but I chose it because I felt that was something that aligned with my interests I felt that it aligned with my this is going to sound maybe a bit airy fairy but my values like what I wanted to do I felt that I would be fulfilled if I did something where I could help somebody and I sort of like had an interest in things that sort of sort of required a critical mind a critical insight How, why does this work why why does that happen kind of thing so I felt that like maybe research might be the best path for me to kind of um utilize that interest maybe maybe that's my answer <laughs> I don't know well it's always great to hear from other researchers how they come to their PhD in that journey and it's mm. always based on experience and like you're saying personal fulfillment uh I think your your research though holds a lot of weight and you're doing something very positive, but at the basis of it, it's for your, yourself to feel, feel like you're doing something that matters to yourself. Yeah. And I think the impact will come after you've done your write-up and actually all between your academic journey, I'm sure there's been people that have been touched or have been, been using what you've, you've done already to their own benefit. Uh, sometimes you just don't see it yeah immediately <laughs> yeah for sure yeah yeah um, yeah I, th I think that's a very good point uh you, you just you just never know exactly what your research will actually do for yeah, others well, i was lucky with my masters and um, i kind of fell into a good position um in the national center men's health in it carlo i did a project on middle-aged men and suicide which was the first project ever done in that area in ireland so you know, I produced a report from that and um, that got launched at a national event and that went on to inform a training program that's been rolled out across Ireland to educate service providers on how to engage with, with middle-aged men around mental health. So I, I never thought that what something I would do would have an impact kind of like 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 that. I'm not saying on that level, but, you know, that wasn't just me. That was like huge support and huge kind of um yeah support structures from people within the institution and outside the institution so i was lucky enough to be in that position that that i was able to do that you know but it's great it's really fulfilling when you see what you've done has had an impact um but i think the resilience part comes in then when what you're doing maybe isn't having an impact and the like what you said maybe that will come after when you're finished kind of thing yeah
Um, so you've kind of combined why you chose this research topic and why does your research matter, but maybe do you want to detail a little bit more as to why it matters since the topic of November is men men's health? Yeah, well, I suppose like in the island of Ireland, so including both Northern Ireland and Ireland, the male suicide rate is on average three to four times higher than the female rate. Um, yet females have higher levels of mental health disorders and mental health distress. I'd just like to preface what I'm talking about. I'm, um, working in the area of men's health doesn't mean that men and women are in opposition to each other. It actually, most of men's health is based on feminist theories. Um, and the kind of construction of masculinity and harmful masculinities um, harms everybody. It's not just the men's health issue. Um, you know, the death of men through suicide or mental health issues affects everybody in society. Do you know what I mean? So from that point of view, like, I just, I, it's crucial to, I suppose, support men that they don't get to that point that they feel the need to take their own lives. But it's also crucial to change the narrative around what it means to be a man um, in, into a more positive thing um, that will benefit everyone in society, males, females, and those that don't prescribe to that, that binary. So in that sense, why does it matter? I think it's hugely important. We need to move away from, we need to keep on addressing what people call toxic masculinity. I don't like that phrase because as I said at the start, it assumes one type of masculinity. Yes, there are people and a lot of, there are men who, who do harmful things. But I think we also need to start moving towards creating an image of what positive masculinity looks like. We need to create role models of how to be a good man. And I think we need to encourage young boys and men to try and strive for that way of being a man as well. We, we know what we shouldn't do. Now we also need to know what we should do. No, I, I really like that you're bringing up this concept of values. And I think that's that's the basis of a human being is the values that we bring or believe in. Uh, and I really think that that's a key factor of your research is you're talking about obviously masculinity or masculinities, and you're not fixated on that. You're looking more about how values and behaviors uh, are in those kind of systems that we've placed as a society. Exactly. Yeah. And how how us, how everybody in society by acting out those behaviors, those behaviors then become part of structures, which then reinforce the values in the individual. So it becomes a cyclical thing. And that's why it's so hard to break, but why we keep need to in our individual interactions with each other to break those those interact to change those interactions that they change structures that stop the kind of cyclical nature of it. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, has your way of thinking or understanding the world changed or been affected by your research so far? Yeah, I think big time, you know. Um, I learned a lot from talking to men about why, about what happened, not what happened them, like the sources of their distress are, are kind of like what has impacted people in their lives. Um, yeah, and you know, like when I first started my masters or finished my undergrad, even I was, I'm still determined, but I was always about myself or how I was going to progress and how, 
I was going to get to the next stage in my job and my career. And, you know, I, I, you know, everybody has, has that in them. But when you talk to people who also felt like that and their lives get turned upside down through economic recession, through, um, yeah, through factors that are outside of their own control, I suppose you start to realize, especially as a man, that there's more to life and more to your identity than your work. And it's not all about your work. There's, It's about your family. It's about your friends. It's about your interests. And that's something that maybe, again, sounds a bit airy-fairy or less tangible, but kind of like what makes up your identity. Um, it's It's almost like diversification of your identity. If something happens, like, are you still you if that thing isn't there anymore? And I suppose that's what I learned is kind of to explore kind of like again, explore my identity or explore like what makes me me and to kind of like that has helped me to feel kind of, I don't know, more content with myself. I just I funny like maybe people subscribe to Audible, but I was looking through the books that I was reading or listening to on Audible and it, it kept going from how to be more productive, how to be productive researcher, how to win friends and influence people. It was always about productivity. And then it kind of changed to mindfulness how to relax and uh, like they're they're very extreme things to go between of being more productive and then trying to calm yourself down so i i just found like to try and be more content and in, in myself and i suppose i learned that from a lot of the people that i would have who were i'm grateful participate in my research so I'll, I'll kind of add to this uh, by asking you do you think prior to covid then did this change for you did your mentality about your research and your work ethic, you know, were you doing things that were a little different before COVID? And then once COVID happened, has that changed you? Um, yeah, and I, I'd also like to say just on the last point I made, it's not that I am fully content in myself or I've reached some higher state of of being or transcendence or whatever you want to call it. But I suppose I'm more, I have an awareness of that now. I have an awareness of of um trying to be more content and um, and has covid changed that i'd say covid has challenged it more um you know it's 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 quite difficult at the moment as you know trying to get your research done trying to get out of the house with lockdowns trying to see my girlfriend trying to see my friends and things like that so yeah i, I, I wouldn't say covid changed it but it's definitely challenged it and there's been weeks and days that I have lost that challenge but I suppose it's about the next day and trying to start again yeah um is there a moment that has marked your research so far so maybe a surprising finding or a moment of relief happiness Mm. in relation to my PhD yeah well your research overall uh yeah which is your PhD yeah yeah um a moment that has has marked my research yeah, well, marked it. I suppose I I did a systematic review at the start of it. I don't know if 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 you have a do you have systematic reviews in your area or is that something that's no we have that as well. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, just some areas don't. I just wasn't sure. Um, yeah. So like that just took a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um, and yeah, it just took it took almost a year and six months to get through it. Do you know what I mean? And uh. 
<laughs> you just the question you asked me there was a moment of relief. Yeah, like I, it was huge relief handing that into the journal for the first time, which might I say got rejected within a week. That and that was really kind of like, oh my god, I'm after spending so long doing this and it's just rejected. No one has even read it. So I've submitted again. It's under review, but um, yeah, that was a a big turning point for me because I felt like it was it was holding me back slightly because it was taking so long, but also to to overcome those challenges, I suppose, is is really um, fulfilling a sense of achievement there as well, you know. Yeah, I could only imagine. I'm still early on in my stages, so uh, well, fingers crossed that everything goes well and it finally gets published or accepted. Yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> as, well, as well, I suppose, um, it would be like when COVID happened, I was meant to do a final stage of my study, which is around co-design, which really co-design means that participants who are uh maybe potential end users of your intervention are involved with the development of the intervention so it's trying to ensure that any product you develop is really acceptable amongst that group that it might be delivered to so that was meant to be conducted face to face in march which we all know what happened in march and um, so i couldn't get that done so it was trying to then go back to ethics see if i can do it online you know exploring all those options and um, so a, a moment of happiness was was starting that uh that collection process again which for me started last month so um yeah best of luck with it <laughs> yeah thanks um who has helped or inspired you um a lot of people, I would say. Um, well, for one, my participants—they're not my participants. Sorry, I shouldn't. I didn't mean that. But I, the people who've participated in my study have taught me a lot about about life. I suppose uh, taught me have inspired me in in how they have overcome challenges in their life. You know, I've struggled with probably anxiety myself throughout my whole life. So you know, learning a lot from those people. In terms of research, like um, Dr. Noel Richardson in the Men's Health National Centre of Men's Health in Monte Carlo would have inspired me a lot through the work that he has done and who supervised me in my master's. Noel wrote the first men's health policy in the world, which is in place in Ireland. Um, and I always felt like he put me just outside my comfort zone, but in the right position. Do you know what I mean? So like, I always felt like I was slightly like, oh, I don't think I can do this. But he was always there. You can. And if you can't, I'll, I'll help you with it. So I feel like that really developed my research skills and also me as a person as well to kind of like put myself out there. And then on top of that, like people who who inspire me or help me, like my my girlfriend and my friends and my family have helped me massively over the last few years doing research, like it's not an easy space to work in. Um, so really just having that support there all the time, people telling you keep going, you're well able for this. I'm sure as as you might feel yourself when you're doing a PhD, you always feel like an imposter. You feel like you feel like someone's gonna catch you out. Like I didn't think I would finish college, never mind doing masters and a PhD. I just didn't think that was on the cards for me. So I always had that in the back of my head that someone's going to figure out you can't do this kind of thing. So having people to be supportive behind you all the time and telling you that you're well able to keep going kind of thing has been hugely helpful. Yeah, the, the word imposter syndrome has been coming up 
quite a few times in the past few months, like different webinars, different people I've been speaking to, but I think someone had told me at the end of your PhD, you're going to be that expert in that area. So <laughs> I know it's something when people say that it puts me off because I'm just like, oh God, I'm not an expert in anything. Sometimes I can't tie my shoelaces right. How am I meant to be an expert? <laughs> it, it's very hard to see the end of the road, but yeah. I, I don't know. People that have done it have the experience. That's their word of wisdom, you know? Yeah, I think as well, like what I found helpful and somebody told me about PhD is like, you're not expected to be an expert at the start. A PhD is a learning journey, like you're training to become an expert. So there's absolutely no way when you start in your first year that you should know how to do everything because it's you're learning how to do it. That's why you're doing a PhD. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, it's okay. Do you have any research rituals or a routine that you keep up with? Um, I wouldn't say I do. I usually start work at about 10 a.m., half 10, which is later than most people. Um, and I work till about six. So I find if I just like I'm just trying to be flexible with my time, I find if I well, if I have meetings and stuff, I'd obviously be, be, you know, whenever. But I find I work better when I have more sleep, which, again, maybe that doesn't... Maybe you're not meant to say that in academia. You're meant to be hardworking and be staying up till four in the morning, but I don't. Um, yeah, I I probably... I always put any writing I have at the start of the day, so between 10 a.m. and 1 o'clock. Um, I find that when I do that, and that's when I have my most concentration. That's when I can get really crucial stuff done. And then if I have any meetings, I'll try to organize them from like one o'clock, two o'clock onwards, so maybe three or three o'clock, four o'clock. And then any menial tasks I have to do, like transcribing data, input numbers into Excel sheets, you know, organizing things. I'll leave that to the end of the day because I feel like that's when I kind of have the least amount of of energy kind of our concentration to do stuff like that um yeah so yeah i see this little sign i have it says says stop if i really uh, need to get right and done i hang that on the door you know because um there's lots of children in my house so they tend to run up and down the hall <laughs> screaming so um my man minds kids so um yeah so I'll, I'll i generally if i really need to get something done i'll put that in the door for a half an hour just so i can get some peace and quiet so for those that can't actually see what he's showing me it's a little stop sign that he hangs on his doorknob outside of his door i <laughs> <laughs> just for people think that's rude I, i've cleared it with everyone in the house they don't mind no, that's that's awesome. I think it's great also when you have other people living in the house with you. So whether you're at home or you're living with roommates, I think people need to know kind of your routine and the hours that you're working the most or need the most concentration. So I, I think it's great that you're very open and having that discussion with. Yeah, and it's not it's not that you expect people to never make noise because other people have to go about their daily lives as well. But it's just like to be realistic, like if you have a major right and you need to do to put one hour aside and just tell people, look, I'm, I'm sorry, but I really need to get this hour done. So if you don't mind, that's that's an open conversation. That's that's yeah. achievable rather than expecting people to never make noise Monday to Friday, which is just not possible. Uh, it's just being reasonable, like uh, it's a give and take. Everyone's in the same situation too, so exactly. everyone works differently. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a great system. 
<laughs> so then how do you manage your work and life balance? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and, and it's something I've always, always thought about because you hear a lot of people talk about research and, and when they give you talks about the research and there's always one slide at the end, just or a bullet point that just says work-life balance, but they never explain what that work-life balance is. And maybe I'm wrong, but as for some academics, like that seems to be more work than life balance. Do you know what I mean? And so it's, it's difficult to maintain a work-life balance at the moment because a lot of our extracurricular activities we can't really do anymore. But some of the things that I think are really important to maintain a work-life balance is to maintain your activities of daily living. So I've felt at the start of lockdown, I had a tendency to maybe start work at 10 I could go till 10 p.m at night time because I'm like well I've nothing else to do so I've completely interrupted what my routine already was um so one of the most important things I found was to try and get up at the same time go to bed at the same time set myself working hours eat my lunch at the same time and try to continue my the structure and routine in my life that I had before lockdown as best as I could so I felt like I still had some sort of continuity in my life um creating to-do lists sounds simple but it's really important uh even if that's just like breaking down really small things for the day like i'm going to write four sentences on this topic when you look back and that's the other thing to-do lists are important but just as important are done lists so what have i achieved this week i think we often don't celebrate that and we kind of go month to month and think I haven't done anything. I'm six months into a PhD and I've done nothing. Whereas you actually have done a lot and you need to remind yourself of that as well. And um, one thing I found useful as well is the next thing approach I learned from, from a web webinar I did in, in Queens on work-life balance, I think it was. And it was on maybe a meeting, maybe like a meeting like this. You know, when you go back now and you're going to try and go, right, I need to write this chapter for my thesis. You need to be realistic of what you're going to start with and what you're going to get done. So what is the next thing I can do when I start again? So that could be writing down after this meeting, I'm going to write one sentence on this topic. So once you get that done, you know what you've done, you know where you're starting and you know where you can go from after that. Because a lot of the time, you kind of get flabbergasted, you know, well, I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this. So where am I going to start? And you end up not doing any of it. So I found that really helpful. Um, as I said before, setting, putting the sign on my door when I really need to work and being realistic with what I'm going to get done. So not saying I'm going to do eight hours with the sign on the door and write 20 pages because that's not realistic. I can do one hour of good writing and I'll try my best to get that done in the day. Um, and then I suppose one of the most simple things is to focus on the things we can control. There's so many things at the moment that we just can't control and are outside our circle of influence. And I think we just really need to be cognizant of the things we can change and the things we can't change. Before we started, you were talking about, um, you know, how COVID has impacted your PhD and the steps you've taken to to change that of the things that are within your control. So it's it's really along those lines. And then on top of that, at the moment, the gyms are still open in, in Ireland, so or in the area that I live. So going to the gym is, is really helpful for me, for my mental health. More so than my physical health, it's just going to have that space for an hour to not think about anything else, you know. So 
yeah, that's I thought about that question a lot because I feel like people always say it, but never give an answer or an example of work life balance. But there maybe that's not work life balance, but it's tips that I've found that's helped me during during lockdown. I, th- I think it's great. Yeah, you, you need to set boundaries for yourself to can't always just be work, work, work. And it yeah. always can't be relaxing and not doing anything. If you want both of them, you have to find a way to make it work for yourself. And, you know, you're telling me you have this system from 10 in the morning till 5, 6 p.m. at night. You know, I've heard other people too. It's a, a nine to four, kind of like a, yeah. a, a work job. Uh, if exactly. you were going into work, you know, during the week, you do what you need to do for your research. And then weeknights and weekends are totally off limits. You do something completely different. You just, you do something else. Exactly. And I do, it's just so important to not, you know, there's going to be days where on a Saturday you have to finish something off. But I just think that like you need to plan your time when you're working, but you also need to plan your time of what you when you're not going to work and plan what you're going to do during that time. Even if that's planning to not do anything, you yeah. need to set that time aside because, as I said at the start, you are more than your work. You're a human being and you have a human life and your work can't contain all that or your life can't be all aspects of your work no exactly except when you have a really big deadline then maybe you forget <laughs> about the entire routine yeah but that that's 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 short term it's just not a sustainable approach over yeah. three years because you'll burn out and just get sick of what you're doing yeah um so then final question what advice would you give to anyone considering starting a phd yeah i i suppose like just to jump in or not to jump not to jump into it to think to think about like why am I doing this PhD why do I want to do this how is it serving me and that's not like what's your 10-year life plan like you don't have that but it's just to think like you know what would I might like to do like and, and how would this PhD really help me get there um as well to like pick a topic area that you're interested in. So what we were talking about at the start, if you're really interested in the area and it holds value to you, it's much easier to do it than if you jump into a topic area that you've no interest in, because that can be a, a tough journey uh, over three years to do something that you don't like. Maybe some people do it and it serves them well in the end, but personally, I don't think I could do it myself. Um, As well, like find a finds if you can sometimes you can but supervisors um that you are experts in your area or i've two great supervisors in queens that are experts in areas of men's health and suicide prevention which i haven't really mentioned them yet actually it's maria lohan and dr karen galway professor maria lohan and dr karen galway have been great to me um over these past three years um yes the fine supervisors you you get along with and not that you get along with, but sorry, I'm rambling now, but just to to try and find supervisors that you think you would get along with. And yeah, just to just explore why you might want to do it first, I think. And then if, if you think it's it's for you, then then explore further into that. I think it's a great tip. Um, yeah. every, everyone has something different to, to add and, and talk about their kind of experience or advice to give to others. So it's really nice to what you're saying is find what's going to find what's going to be it. Oh, sorry. 
find what the PhD is going to do for you. And it might not answer all your questions and you're going to have a ton more starting it, but at least try to fig figure out one thing that you want to be doing with the PhD. Yeah. And as well, like, I think, I think as well as, is to manage your expectations in terms of what your PhD can achieve as well. I think that's important for people who are maybe in a PhD at the start of it. You know, at the, at the start, you might think that you're going to change the world. And that's a great way to, to think like, but it, as well, you're doing a PhD as well, at the same time. You don't have endless funding to change the world. You don't have endless resources to change the world. And maybe you can make a small difference and that's great. But just to keep those expectations in line, because I think if we set ourselves huge expectations and then we don't achieve them, that can be really demoralizing. So I think we need to, to manage what's achievable and mind ourselves in that journey as well. Oh, that's great. I really thank you for your time today, Shane. Uh, no problem at all. Thanks for having me on. I hope some of that was useful for somebody, but... I, I think it will be. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I learned something new today as well, so... <laughs> no problem, Georges. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Very welcome. And that's it for this month. If you're interested in being featured in one of our researcher spotlights, please get in touch with us on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised here today, please see the information below the episodes for further help. Take care of yourself and speak up if you're struggling. We'll be back in two weeks' time and we'll be covering a new theme for December. See you then.